0: Let's pray together as we, as we come to God's word. Our Father, we, we trust that we need this warning given by the Apostle Peter for our own protection and our own spiritual well-being. So we pray that you would help us to hear this warning well and to heed it and that it would all be for our protection, for our salvation and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been a few weeks uh, since we've been in the book of Second Peter. So just to remind you, Second Peter contains the last recorded words of the Apostle Peter before his impending death. And it is a letter that he has written for the encouragement of Christian believers, and that's us. It's a letter of warning. Peter desperately wants Christians to be well-informed and to remain strong in the faith after his departure. And there are two main areas of encouragement that he focuses on in this letter. Um, Peter gives encouragement about the day of the Lord, which is coming, or as we might say, the return of Christ, which is found in chapter 3, which we'll be beginning next week. And he also gives them extensive warnings, which we just read in chapter 2, about the inevitable dangers of false teachers. And at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, Peter draws an important contrast that we need to remember between the reliable foundation of Holy Scripture and the unreliability of the false prophets. So, just to refresh ourselves about where we've been, look again with me at chapter 1, verse 20. Peter wants us to pay attention to the prophetic word of Holy Scripture, and he continues in chapter 1, verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter wants us to be well established on the reliable foundation of Holy Scripture. But in chapter 2, verse 1, we have a warning. Just as God has sent his prophets to his people who have spoken to us in the scriptures, false prophets also arose among the people. Chapter two, verse one. Just as there will be false teachers among you. So this chapter before us, chapter two, is a warning about the false teachers who will inevitably arise in our own day and age and who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Three weeks ago, we looked at the first half of chapter 2, and we learned that false teachers will be characterized by sensuality. And in verse 2, we read, many will follow their sensuality. And in verse 3, we see that they are also driven by another impulse, the impulse of greed. Peter writes, and in their greed, these false teachers will exploit you with false words. Peter makes it clear over and over again in a lot of different ways in this letter that the Lord will visit these false teachers with destruction and eternal judgment. For example, verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Um, I don't know if this is a, an official literary genre, but this chapter is a rant. Peter is giving a rapid-fire denouncement. Just, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. You wonder when he's going to run out of steam It's a detailed explanation of these false teachers who will exploit the church until the Lord returns. And if it's that important to Peter as his dying words as an apostle giving these warnings to the church, it must also be important for us. So in verse 10, we pick up our text for this morning. And in verse 10, we see there are two problems with these false teachers there are all sorts of false teachers. But in verse 10, Peter speaks about a certain kind of false teachers, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and who despise authority. So all false teachers are bad, and all false teachers will face punishment on the day of judgment, but the kind that Peter deals with now are those who are especially despicable, who are especially condemned by God, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and who despise authority. We see that they despise authority from the second half of verse 10. Peter says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels... Though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. This is a cryptic verse, very confusing. What is Peter talking about? Well, the theme that Peter is illustrating is that these false teachers despise authority. They have no qualms or hesitation about blaspheming the glorious ones. The glorious ones are angelic beings. And we don't know what these false teachers were saying about angelic beings, except that they were blaspheming them. They were speaking against them. They had no qualms whatsoever about speaking poorly concerning angelic beings. I don't don't know more than that. That's, That's what I know. But in contrast, the angels who are greater in might and in power do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. In other words, the false teachers are bold and willful and they blasphemously disrespect others, even angelic beings. But the mighty and powerful angels... They would not presume to speak a word against the false teachers on their own accord. So, this is strange, isn't it? But I think we'll be helped if we, if we peek over at another rant against false teaching in the book of Jude. Um, there are a dozen or so parallels, at least a dozen parallels, between chapter 2 of Second Peter and the book of Jude. Um, 2 Peter chapter 2 and the book of Jude are very closely intertwined with one another, and the scholars debate about why that is or which came first, who's reading whom. But here's what Peter writes, not Peter, uh, this is what Jude writes in Jude 9 and 10 about the same strange thing. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. Now it's getting more confusing. We don't know any more about that than what we read right here. But here's the point. When Michael was contending with the devil himself, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but instead he said, the Lord rebuke you. So in other words... There was some dispute between the Archangel Michael and the devil concerning the body of Moses. We don't know anything else about this dispute except that. But what's most important is that the Archangel Michael, for all his power and glory and position, did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment even against the devil. Instead, he left the act of judgment up to the Lord and said, instead, the Lord rebuke you. Uh, Jude, Jude verse 10 continues, but these people, that is the false teachers, blaspheme all that they do not understand. We see the same thing. In Second Peter chapter 2, the false teachers are bold and willful, they despise authority, they don't hesitate to offer blasphemous judgments against others. In their arrogance, they freely insult and condemn others, even angelic beings. In contrast to that, the, the righteousness of the angelic beings is seen in the fact that they do not claim judgment for themselves, instead they say, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, so what are we supposed to do with all of this? One of the marks of a false teacher is that they boldly and arrogantly pronounce judgment upon everyone else. Especially their righteous opponents. They despise authority found elsewhere. Instead, they exalt their own authority. They don't hesitate to tear down any authority other than themselves. They despise angelic authority. They despise apostolic authority. They despise scriptural authority. And they set themselves up as the apostolic voice of God. They may even despise the authority of Jesus himself, as we see in chapter 2, verse 1. They even deny the master who bought them. So here's what this means for us. Watch out for those teachers who claim to have a corner on the market of truth. I think this is a challenge for any of us who are teachers because we all think we're right and we think what we're doing is the best way to do things. But watch out for those teachers who despise authority found elsewhere and who exalt their own authority above all else. Watch out for those teachers who are quick to condemn and to speak against everyone else in order to exalt themselves and make themselves look good. We see this kind of activity going on in many different uh, false teaching movements today. I thought about naming names, but I'm not naming any names today because it seems like the passage is telling me to cool it with that. Um, But I do know of one ministry, which will remain nameless, um, that claims apostolic authority for themselves, and they even seem to exalt their own revelations over and against Scripture itself. In this movement, they often say, it's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity, not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And it sounds true, right? After all, the Bible isn't the third person of the triune God. We all know that. But this is a subtle way of putting down the authority of the Bible and giving more authority to their own revelations, supposedly inspired by the Holy Spirit. But they ignore the fact that the Holy Bible is the product of the Holy Spirit, speaking through the apostles and the prophets, as Peter just told us at the end of chapter 1. The Holy Bible is the sword of the Spirit, the very word of God. So, it isn't the third person of the Trinity, but to exalt the Spirit at the expense of the Bible is a confusion because these are the words of God inspired through the Holy Spirit. It's a form of despising authority. And what this group actually means is that their own apostolic revelations, which they presume to be from the Holy Spirit, are on par with Scripture itself, at least, or practically speaking, perhaps even above Scripture itself. So let's be on guard for those who despise authority. It is a toxic recipe to pronounce judgment on every other authority but ourselves. We should not claim to be the exclusive standard of truth within ourselves. Instead, we should submit ourselves to and all of our doctrine, our judgments, our ideas to the authority of God in His Word. And instead of acting as the final judge of everyone else, we should take our cue from the mighty angelic beings who reserve ultimate judgment to the Lord alone. So first, they despise authority. Let's watch out for that. Let's not do that, and let's not follow teachers who do that. Now we come to the second quality of these especially heinous false teachers, also listed in verse 10. They indulge in the lust of defiling passions. These false teachers are driven by sensuality and greed And lust. They're motivated by the appetites of their flesh. And Peter paints a vivid picture in verse 12. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. Will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Peter says they're like animals. And we know what animals are like. If you go to the farm or the zoo or the dog park, you will see that animals have no moral scruples, they simply do what they feel like doing. They simply indulge their urges. They follow their instincts. And like animals, these false teachers obey their appetites and their fleshly instincts. They live for sensuality and greed and lust. Verse 14 says of them, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. And there certainly have been many false teachers who use their position to manipulate people in order to satisfy their own sensual appetites. It's such a sad thing that we don't even like to talk about it, but Peter puts it front and center for us He warns us directly about this. So many cult leaders and self-absorbed religious figures have simply used their teaching position in order to build a kind of love nest for themselves, in order to satisfy their own horrifying appetites. They satisfy their greed. They satisfy their lust. They live for this world and its pleasures. But Peter warns that these animal false teachers will be judged for the wrong they have done. They are headed for destruction. Verse 12 says, they are born to be caught and destroyed. And they also will be destroyed in their destruction, he says. The wage for their wrongdoing is that they will suffer wrong from God when they face his judgment. How different these animal-like false teachers are from the leaders that God desires for his church. God desires leaders for his church who are not in it for themselves. They're not using their ministries as a means of gratifying the desires of the flesh. Paul describes his own example to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 33. Paul writes, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Likewise, in the qualifications for the office of elder, Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that an overseer must be the husband of one wife, sober minded, self-controlled, not a lover of money. There's no room for sensuality, there's no room for greed among the leaders of God's church. In Titus chapter 1 we read, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, Holy and disciplined. See, God's desire is that His church be led by those who are not animals. They are not ruled by their appetites, rather, they are ruled by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God who leads them in self control. I think of the example of some godly men. these three that I'm, I'm about to name are prolific authors. And you know what happens when you write a lot of books? You get a lot of money. Uh, I think of godly men like John Piper and John Stott and Kenneth Taylor. John Piper has written many books, and the royalties from those books have become an astounding fortune. And yet, you know, John Piper doesn't receive any money those books. Why not? Because he's not in it for his own glory. He's not in it for financial gain. He has sworn those, all those royalties over to a charitable foundation and all the money from all of his writings that he earns is given away by that foundation to further the work of the gospel among the nations. I mean, he could have been a multimillionaire, but instead... He gave it all away. Isn't that a wonderful example? Likewise, John Stott used his considerable publishing royalties not for himself, but to equip the church overseas with theological materials and leadership development. Ken Taylor was the one man translator of the Living Bible. But he didn't take the considerable proceeds generated from the living Bible for himself. Instead, the money goes to fund the cause of Christ all over the world through a charitable foundation called the Tyndale Foundation. In contrast to the animal greed of so many, these men are glorious examples of faithful gospel ministry born out of God-honoring motives. They have exemplified Jesus' own words, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Isn't that beautiful? You could rake in millions of dollars, but instead you choose to give it away. In their selfless conduct, these men illustrate the character of Jesus himself. Jesus was the ultimate faithful shepherd of God's people. And what was his disposition like? He didn't come for his own glory and benefit. Jesus did not come for his own pleasure and profit. In Mark 10, 45, we read the righteous character of Jesus. Mark tells us, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his own life as a ransom for many. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. We also read in Philippians 2, six, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of, Of death, even death on a cross. That's the standard. That's our King. He sets the model for us to follow. He shows us what a faithful shepherd really looks like. So there's no room, you see, for greed. There's no room for those who exploit the church for their own greed and sensuality. And lust. Peter continues his extensive rant about these false teachers in verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, and they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. But he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Peter says that these greedy, false teachers who are given over to sensuality have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. Actually, the Greek text says Balaam, the son of Bosor, which is a little interesting. He's always called Balaam, the son of Beor, in the Old Testament. So why why is it Balaam, the son of Bosor? This is a play on words Peter is doing because Bosor or Basar is the Hebrew word for flesh. So in this play on words, Peter is reminding us that Balaam and those like him are sons of the flesh. They live to gratify the desires of their flesh. Well, if you want more uh, happy reading. Um, you can This afternoon, you can read Numbers chapter 22 through 24 about Balaam, and it's quite a story. But if you know Balaam at all, he's most famous because of his talking donkey. Um, the donkey upstaged him. But there's much more to the story of Balaam than the talking donkey. If you go back and read the story on the surface of things, Balaam comes out looking pretty good. He appears to be very pious. He claims to speak only the word of the Lord with great pageantry. He he says that. But really all along he's just waiting for a bigger price tag. Balaam was not a true prophet. He was a prophet for hire, more like a fortune teller than a man of God. He would gain riches by offering words of divine blessing to anyone who would pay for them. Balaam presented himself as a man with great insight into divine revelation. And certainly he got it right some of the time by the Lord's sovereign hand. But even his donkey had better spiritual insight than he did. And even though the Lord used wicked and greedy Balaam to bless the people of Israel, Balaam turned out to be a real rogue. We read in Numbers thirty-one sixteen. Behold these, that is the women of Moab and Midian, on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of Israel. So this tells us that apparently Balaam, um, while he was pious on the surface, behind the scenes he was encouraging the women of Moab and Midian to seduce the men of Israel in order to bring about their downfall. And in the account of that incident in Numbers 25, just after Balaam's visit, it says that the people of Israel began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So apparently it's, be, it's because of the advice of Balaam that Israel fell into this horrifying immorality and was judged by the Lord. He was the instigator of this, this spiritual attack against the people of Israel. It's because of him that Israel fell into this horrifying immorality and was judged by the Lord. Balaam was on the take, and although he appeared pious, he was working to line his pockets by any means necessary. A word from God to the highest bidder. And and for Peter, Balaam is the perfect picture of these false prophets that Peter is warning us about. He says that these false teachers have followed the way of Balaam the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Just like Balaam, these false teachers are greedy for gain and they don't care what happens to God's people in the process. They're willing to speak false words in order to line their own pockets and to satisfy their own lusts. Just like Balaam, they lead God's people astray into the worship of other gods, into sexual immorality, and ultimately into judgment and destruction. And You know, we have plenty of false teachers today who are still following the way of Balaam. And there are plenty of people today who may not be teachers themselves, but who are following the spirit of Balaam. Following teachers whose motive is greed in order to satisfy their own greed. That's what the prosperity gospel is all about. Uh, Greedy people following greedy preachers. And notice what Peter says of them in verse 19 They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Isn't that interesting? What do these false prophets promise? They promise freedom. In other words, they loosen God's morals. As it says in Jude 4 as well, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They endorse immorality in the name of God's grace. Well, God is a God of love. Don't worry, love is love is love. God won't punish us. He's a God of grace. They give people a license for immorality. They say that God is okay with it. They are free to do what they desire. And they lead God's people into sexual immorality in the name of freedom. We have the same promises of freedom today, don't we? They promise that God's sexual ethics no longer apply. They say that God's moral standards were only cultural. They promise sexual freedom in God's own name. And when the people follow this supposed way of freedom, what they get instead, according to verse 19, is actually slavery. Whenever we are overcome by our sinful desires... Our hearts are crying, freedom, let's get God's commands and his restraints away from us. We put our desires in the driver's seat. But what we're not getting is freedom. We're not getting freedom as promised. We're actually getting slavery. It's a slavery that leads to corruption. True freedom is not doing what we want. True freedom is not fulfilling our every desire. True freedom is found only when we give ourselves and our desire over to God. When we choose to live by his word and to trust in him rather than to please ourselves. Following our fleshly desires is not freedom at all. It's actually slavery, Peter says. We become slaves to our own appetites. Well, Peter's warnings here in this chapter about false teachers are not just hypothetical. We might say, well, yeah, this is quite a rant, Neil, and I've had quite enough of it. I'm kind of exhausted. But these warnings are not just hypothetical. This is not just a crazy uncle and we can just wait until he cools down. This is an apostolic warning to God's people. He promises in verse 1, there will be false teachers among you. We will encounter them and we must be prepared. False teachers like these are preaching in some of the churches in our towns. They're a click away on the internet. They have great media presence. They can be found on our radio dial. And we need to be aware of them. How we need to pay attention to the sure word of God so that we will not be led astray. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this apostolic warning. We trust you that we need it. We need to be warned of the danger to come so that we will steer clear of it and remain anchored in the foundation of your word. And we know that the destructive forces of greed and lust and sensuality are not just those people out there. Those forces are at work in our own hearts. Um, They resonate with our sinful nature. So we pray, Lord, that we would be those who walk in righteousness and self-control, who walk in your truth according to your commands by the power of the Holy Spirit. May we may we steer clear of the way of Balaam and instead be a people who trust in your word and brings you glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.